So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here, we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Ahla sahla, and welcome back to Unlimited, where we're continuing the Pi series, looking at what MIT was like in the past few years. I'm here to introduce our co-host, Arin Bahur, who will be continuing the series and introducing our next guest. Ahlan wa sahlan to another episode in our Pi series, a series featuring recent graduates and current MIT students who share with us their MIT journey. Today, we are lucky to have Zaina Musa with us. She is currently a senior at MIT pursuing her Bachelor of Science in Bioengineering and expected to graduate in 2021. Her studies focus on drug delivery, machine learning, and medical devices. She is passionate about public service and education, and I'm so excited to learn more, more about her journey before and at MIT, as well as what the future may hold for Zaina. So Zaina, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Yeah. Um, I would love to start with hearing a bit about your journey leading up to MIT. So was it always your dream school? How did you learn about it? How do you how did you end up choosing it? Give us kind of the the background there. Yeah, no problem. Actually, um, I've, I've never been the type of person to really have like a dream school. Um, I so the past couple of years, I think in high school, I was living in Lubbock, Texas, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I went to this tiny all girls public school. Um, and when I was applying for colleges, I was really interested in math and science and I didn't really know where to apply to my, my parents didn't go to the school, to school in the U S. Um, and so my mom suggested MIT and because I went to a really small high school, very new as well. I didn't really have anybody to, (laughs) to ask about MIT. So I just kind of applied early admission and I got in, I was very shocked that I got in, but, um, yeah, that's kind of where I was at. And then I went to CPW and I absolutely loved it. I love the culture here. It's very, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's very unique, I guess. It's, uh, you will find your place if you really want to find your place. And people are very quirky. And I, I love that about this place. And that's why I ended up coming here. Yeah. That's awesome. We actually have a very similar story. I also kind of didn't have an idea, but it worked out <laughs> for the best. Um, exactly. You mentioned CPW. I don't know if our listeners know about that. If they're not MIT students, maybe they don't. So that stands for Campus Preview Weekend. Can you tell us a little bit about what CPW is and what maybe your favorite part was? Yeah, so Campus Preview Weekend, uh, as you mentioned a little bit, is a weekend in April, I believe, um, that they'll fly out all the students who got admitted. And it's essentially three or four days of just, I don't even know, 300 to 400 events from what I hear that mostly students put on. It's mostly student run. Um, and there's really just everything. I remember I, I got the back of my hair dyed <laughs> blonde. <laughs> I, that was like one of the weird events. 
Um, I remember begging my mom, I was like, oh my God, please, mama, can I get my hair done? And yeah, so I ended up doing that. Wow, you asked her, I was going to say, did you just shock your parents and go back with half blonde hair? (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. It was definitely a back and forth. It was a bit, I was like, halas, it's fine. Like there's very tiny piece in the back of my head. You can't, nobody can see it. It's fine. So she gave in, but yeah, I mean, I remember doing those events. There was so much food. I'd never seen so much food in my life. And yeah, everybody there was just so nice and welcoming. Everybody wanted me to come to MIT to tell them to tell me about their journey. Um, I remember one of my favorite events was the puzzle hunt that Simmons Hall, one of the dorms, puts on. It's just they give you a bunch of papers. They tell you solve these puzzles and try to do it as fast as possible in a team. Um, and then another event, they take you on like a tour of MIT campus at night. Uh, and mind you, I'm from Texas, so I only brought a light jacket and realized it was going to get so cold. So I was, you know, shivering on top of one of the buildings outside at like three in the morning. So it was definitely an experience to remember. That's awesome. I couldn't make it to mine because I, I was in Palestine and it was too far of a trip, but I hear such amazing stories. So if you are applying to MIT and you can make it to CPW, highly recommend um, so you mentioned uh, Texas a couple of times. I actually know where Lubbock is just because oh. one of my my sister had to visit it and I had to look it up because I had no idea where it was. <laughs> yeah. But um, so you grew up there and you also mentioned that you went to a very small all girls school. So that's pretty different from Cambridge, Massachusetts and definitely pretty different from kind of the MIT campus. So were there, um, so how different was it? Like, let's just maybe start there, moving from Lubbock to Cambridge. And then was were there any challenges getting acclimated to MIT? Oh, yes, definitely. I think one of the big things was the weather. I never really got used to it. And I tried to, um, I, honestly, I don't have that many winter clothes. I would borrow jackets because I refused. I was like, I'm not staying here. <laughs> I already know after the weather. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, because I went to an all-girls school, and it was a public school, so kind of a unique uh, school. And it was established, I think, 2008. So I don't think anybody before me had really gone to a, a school at the level of MIT. So there was a lot that I needed to learn. And again, as I said, like both of my parents um, didn't go to school in the U.S. and my brother went to a state school. And so I kind of there were a lot of things that I think they, they don't do the subject tests anymore, but I didn't I had to take the subject test and then doing an interview. I'd never done that before. Um, so just even the process of getting into MIT is kind of like me figuring it out by myself with some of the help of the guidance counselor. But they were also figuring it out along with me. Um, and then I guess when I came to MIT, I was very at first I was very intimidated because um, again, because I went to this small school that had AP classes, but not really much else and most of the teachers were newer um a lot of people who I was taking classes with had like taken college courses had their um associate's degrees already I was like I didn't even know this was an option (laughs) um but it's like you know I, I like to a certain extent after you get through freshman year it's very much an equalizer um and so even though I did come in kind of intimidated and being like oh I don't know if this is the right place for me I don't know if I'm on the same level with these other people I definitely um, over time, got a lot more acclimated, especially, I just remember sitting in 1802, which is multivariable calculus, and the professor was like, okay, we're going to talk about this and this with vectors today. You guys all learned vectors in high school. I was like, oh, I didn't learn vectors in Did high we? school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I, don't, I guess we didn't go to the same high school. Um, so yeah, it, it was, a, I think freshman fall was a big shock for me, like, 
weather-wise, being away from home, being in a completely different educational, very challenging educational environment. But like, I'm really glad that that kind of happened so early because I, because of the system PNR, you know, like there's no, uh, it's all pass fail, pass no record freshman fall. Um, that really helped me get acclimated to like being used to failing and picking myself back up and keep moving forward, you know? Yeah, I think you bring up a great point with personal record. I don't think that's come up on any of our previous podcasts with current students and recent graduates. Um, I think that is such a great strategy or tactic that MIT takes to make sure that we, like you said, it's an equalizer in a way because we all come from different backgrounds, different educations, just, I guess, different expectations of what MIT will be like. And I always joke that, you know, Everybody getting into MIT is probably highly accomplished, great grades, a lot of extracurriculars, all of that. So we're all usually used to being, you know, among the top X percent mm-hmm. of a class. And then you come to MIT, and I always say this, I think I even said it on the last episode, like mathematically speaking, like half of us will be below average, whatever that average yeah. is. And that's <laughs> a hard pill to stomach when you are a straight A student the majority of your life. Exactly. Um, so definitely the past no record helps. And I'm actually glad we talked about this because I feel like a lot of people associate cultural shock or kind of some of the challenges with moving internationally. But I don't think Mm -hmm. we talk about it so much when you're moving nationally from state to state or from small city to bigger city. Um, So it's it's refreshing to hear that perspective and to know that, you know, the challenges are shared, um, which I think helps. It brings everybody together. Cool. And you mentioned uh, that you got some help from the guidance counselor, but it did seem that kind of you were one of the first people in your community to be pursuing kind of application Mm -hmm. to MIT. So there wasn't like that much, you know, information and preparation and you had to do a lot of research. And I think as a student, I'm sure that you get this question a lot, whether from other like people from your high school or from your town or family, like what's the secret? Like, how do I get in? Um, So Outside of the required exams and being a you know good student and having great academic standing and all of the things that check the boxes, right? Um, what else do you think from your experience in high school, whether it's extracurriculars or anything like that, may have helped um, kind of helped your application stand out and and get your early admission to MIT? Yeah, honestly, and I've thought about this a lot over the past year, a uh, couple of years, but I think that. Um, I honestly don't know, but one thing that I've noticed when interacting with other MIT students that I've really seen when people talk about like coming into MIT is that, um, you can, they express the passion really well, if that makes sense that, um, like if they did like anything that they did, it doesn't matter if it was like STEM related or not. If you could tell that they threw themselves into something wholeheartedly and were really like following through with the things that they wanted to do. Um, I I guess somehow the passion was picked up on. Yeah, I think for me, like in high school, I did academic decathlon. I'm kind of nerd. So it's basically like these, uh, they give you a topic every year and they do, there's 10 different subjects. So you do um, math, science, music, art, literature. I'm forgetting the rest. And then you basically just learn everything, all of those aspects, like around the topic. So for example, one year was all about World War One. The next year was like about India and energy. So yeah, so I mean, I think like with that, I really, that was something that I loved to do in high school and I really stuck with it all four years. So I don't know if that was something that like shined in my application. 
But yeah, I don't know. That, that's something I just noticed when interacting with students. And I think that's also what makes MIT so hard to a certain extent is that when people come here, they don't just lose the passion. They don't give up the things that they were doing in high school. Um, because I say that a lot of times, like people will do things for the GPA or for the resume in high school, and then they'll drop them as soon as they get to college. But here I really see like a continuation of the things that people have done because they genuinely like to do it rather than just having something on there for a resume. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I actually love that your first answer was just like, I don't know, because I think people get obsessed with the idea of like, what Mm -hmm. boxes do I check? Like, what do I need to fit? But I think when you start doing things just for the sake of being the perfect candidate, that's something that I think will show, right? And to your point, that will diminish from the passion that you are actually you know, showing to the admissions mm-hmm. office or, or whoever is reviewing the application. So I, I agree with that. And I think I wish more people would think of it more that way of just like do what truly you are passionate about. And if you have the ambition, if you have the initiative, someone will see that. And mm-hmm. and that's the person you want to get admitted. Like you don't want the person that checked all the boxes because then you're not going to be in the right institution, like because it accepted you based on the things that you thought you should do, not the things that you really wanted to do. Exactly. Um, so that's a great point. And speaking of things we wanted to do or want to do, you are uh, studying bioengineering. What sparked that interest? Um, So why bioengineering? And did you know before? Did you decide at MIT? Did you maybe switch while at MIT? Tell us more about that. Yeah. So I guess a little backstory. So my dad, he, I grew up, he had diabetes, still has diabetes, and I would often watch him, you know, like inject himself with insulin, use a glucometer and it just really struck me how accessible those technologies were. The fact that, you know, you can hand a patient a needle and expect them to stab themselves and that's okay somehow. I don't know. It's just, it was always weird to me. So that kind of got me interested in like the technological, medical technology side of it. And then, um, so my mom's family is from Morocco. So every time we go, I think this is like an immigrant thing in general, but it's like every time we go to Morocco, we have an extra bag with us, fill it up. We put these buckets in there and fill it up with like medicine from the grocery store. Um, and then on the way back, we like bring sweets in the same buckets. <laughs> it's a good deal. But yeah, I don't know. I, it just really struck me the fact that like we've had access to all of these medications and for, you know, some of my family to be able to get these medications, we have to bring them the med- You know what I'm saying? Like not... They just don't have access to it in the same way that we do or that if we even think about like, you, you know, you pass by the grocery store, you see like fish oil and like, uh, what is it called? Like cortisone cream. And it's just common everywhere. But, you know, in, in other countries, it's not necessarily um, the same thing. So, yeah, I, I guess that really started to get me thinking about like health inequities, um, international health inequities and um, like engineering, especially like paired with like the things I had seen growing up. And so, again, in high school, I didn't really have, like, engineering classes to um, kind of pursue that passion of mine. But then I did this program, this summer program called the Research Engineering Apprenticeship Program, my junior high school. And they had us start to build, like, robots just for us to, like, understand how robotics and, like, electrical engineering, computer science work, get us interested in that. But I... I said, you know, I'm here, like, I would rather do something more biomedical related. Um, So I actually, they were like, okay, go look online and see if you can find something. And I found that people have made, like, their own DIY EKGs, electrocardiograms. And so I ended up building one over the summer. Very, very rudimentary. But 
yeah, it was, it was a super cool thing. And I, I mean, looking back, I don't think that I would have ever thought that I would be able to do it just given that I had no background in electrical engineering or computer science or anything like that. But it was a really great experience. And I think that kind of solidified the fact of like, it got me started thinking about um, like, how can we create more accessible technologies from the technologies that we already have? Like if it was easy for me or relatively <laughs> given the time point of like two or three months to build an electrocardiogram as a high school student, like why can we not find people who are, you know, professional engineers find better ways to like reiterate on current technologies to make them more accessible and more affordable. Um, and so I guess through that, that's kind of my outlook and like what I want, the research I want to pursue in the future is looking at how we can one, revisit old technologies and iterate upon them so that they are um, more accessible to the group of people who need it the most. Um, and two, when we're creating completely new technologies, keeping in mind how we can innovate in the first place for the people who need it the most rather than that be like a second or third thought. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a an ambitious and kind of amazing goal to, to have that. I, I love that. And I wonder, so I, I thought you were on a pre-med track, but now that I'm hearing more about your research interests, I'm curious. So you're graduating next month. What's next for Zena? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. So I'm actually um, going to be pursuing an MD-PhD, which is a joint medical and graduate program. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty long. <laughs> it's eight years of my life, at least. Um, but yeah, I, I just, the, one of the reasons I got interested in that, was, um, I don't know, I, I started to realize more as I got into the engineering aspect of things that often, as I mentioned before, people are not innovating for the most marginalized group in the first place. And thus they're missing out on a whole population who like needs this technology the most and who it's the most inaccessible towards. And I think that's just like one aspect of how engineers often don't I don't think they consider the humanistic side of like what they're creating for as much they get really caught up in the little details um or like in the technology that they're creating and they forget who the technology is actually supposed to serve who is for um and so for me wanting to create biomedical technology it's only logical that I'd want to you know have that connection with the patients and actually ask patients okay well what is something that you needed in your life or like you find inaccessible you know having those like actual human stories um to inform the direction of the technologies that you're innovating and also to like create technologies for those people yeah absolutely so eight years of your life did you choose somewhere warmer <laughs> since um, you didn't I invest in any jackets <laughs> yeah i will say i didn't really apply anywhere in the boston area i haven't um yet chosen where i'm going yet but yeah, I, yeah, I'm not coming. Sounds like you're going to try to go to the other coast. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like I'm the hearing. South as well. Yeah, it definitely not the New England area. It's not for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, congratulations. It's uh, an MD-PhD is incredibly impressive and with such a noble goal and, and ambition in mind. I am, for one, very, very interested to see what you do in research and post post kind of your MD PhD journey. Cool. So we talked a bit about uh, kind of what you want to work on in the future. We touched a little bit about research, but I know that there are plenty of work and research experiences and opportunities on campus. And I think you were, in, you were, or and might still be involved in some uh, undergraduate research opportunities. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. If you can share with our listeners kind of what opportunities MIT has in terms of research and then what 
um, labs or, or projects you've been a part of in your time at MIT? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. So I guess to start off, MIT is probably one of the most accessible places if you ever want to do undergraduate research. I think something around 90% of undergraduates do the research um, during the time that they're at MIT, which is crazy. Um, so how I got interested in research was I did these, um, there's this thing called pre-freshman orientation programs or FPOPs. They happen before orientation and they're targeted at helping you get to know more about a certain aspect of MIT. And so the one that I did was discover your op or discover the undergraduate research opportunities program. Um, and so what that entailed was we went to, we toured different labs on campus and got to know more about, um, the types of research they were doing and also like the process for applying for undergraduate research, which is um, pretty relatively simple. Um, and then another thing is that MIT will fund research as well. So it's very easy to like, if you have economic concerns as well, like, oh, I can't really afford to do research. Like I need to do a job instead that an option is for you to do your op for pay or your op for credit. So you can get um, like GPA difference account towards your GPA. Um, so for me, when I was doing this uh, FPOP program, we toured the Langer Lab, which is a, I, I think one of the biggest labs in the country. Um, and they do mostly like biomedical research applications. It's at the uh, Koch Institute for Cancer Research on campus. So I remember we were touring the lab and then one of the graduate students was working on this thing called hydrogels, which are um, kind of these really interesting materials that they, you, you essentially like, I can't do the the hand, the hand motions. <laughs> like it's, it's very similar to like a mesh system that's very multiple. Um, and so they have a lot of applications in the way that you, you can fine tune them to be temperature sensitive or pressure sensitive, um, which make them really, really great materials, especially for biomedical um, applications. And so he was showing us like these little hydrogels that he made. And I'm, very much a hands-on person so I was like oh my god this is so cool um and so a couple weeks later I just cold emailed Bob Langer mind you was like I think he has one of the most patents in the world or something just this crazy superstar PI I just emailed him <laughs> yeah it's crazy so I emailed him I was like hey I'm looking for a Europe I toured your lab a couple weeks ago I'm really interested in this and bam I ended up working on the project and so that that's kind of a testament to how easy it is to get involved into research here, even ones that are more competitive, I would say, it's still all it takes is an introduction email. Um, so I've worked in the Langer lab. I have also worked in the Belcher lab on campus. And, and I've also done an independent research project. And all of those have been funded through the Undergraduate Research Opportunities Office. Um, and so that's kind of a testament to how easy, like, I think every single one of them, I just cold emailed, was like, hey, I'm interested in this. I had a conversation with a graduate student and then we started working on a project. Um, oh, I also did a year up in the Edelman lab, which is a joint lab between MIT and Harvard. That's awesome. So honestly, what I take away from that is we asked before, like, what's the secret to getting in? So I think once you get in, the secret to like having these experiences is just ask. It's really exactly. that simple. And I remember having a lot of just being stressed, like, oh, I can't reach out to this professor or like, I don't have any research experience. Everybody here has been like doing this for many years and they had all these opportunities and I didn't. And it like, you kind of get in your head a little bit, but really all you have to do is ask, what's the worst that's going to happen? They say no. And there's a bunch of other opportunities. 
Um, so I think that's that's the secret, at least once on campus. If we can't crack the code before you get there, we can crack the code when you're there. <laughs> yes, I definitely agree. There's just so many resources on campus. If there's anything you want to do, you can find money for it. It's, it's actually insane how much money there is available on campus. So I would definitely recommend taking advantage of that. Yeah, and it's something that you'll miss when you leave. I guess as somebody who is an alum, I do miss that. I do miss having the funding, the support, the resources for any sort of project, idea, the opportunity to do that. Unfortunately, the real world is a little bit tighter on the resources. <laughs> um, that's so that's true. fantastic. That's definitely one of the things that if I am to do MIT again, I would be more more mindful of how much there is, how much there is to offer and how like after I leave, I may not have these similar opportunities and taking advantage of that is essential. And mm -hmm. to that point, I wonder what you would do if you are to do MIT again. I know you're still there, but you're graduating in a month. So if you are to be a freshman in orientation again tomorrow, about to you know do your whole four years at MIT again, is there anything you would do differently? I think to kind of go back to your point, the capitalizing on the money, I definitely would do more. So one of my friends did it very well. She did MISTI, which is, I don't remember, it's something, something, Science and Technology Initiative. But essentially like it's our study. International, uh, we talked about this last podcast and I never remember the abbreviations, like the MIT International Science Technology Initiative, maybe something like that. Yes. But it's basically- yes, that's it international travel opportunities <laughs> exactly and so I never actually ended up doing one but my friend did she went to India and to Brazil and South Africa all through that program and another of my friends went to Ghana so just and these were all free actually paid so they pay you um like enough to so that it's basically room and board and also the flight yeah, um, stipend. So you you end yeah, up net exactly. neutral. <laughs> exactly, and honestly, for traveling, that's perfect net neutral. Because I mean, when you compare it to other universities, I talk to a lot of my friends who go to state schools, and the fact is that if they want to do study abroad, they have they may get some scholarships, but mostly will be out of pocket. Um, and so the fact that we have these opportunities here to go to a completely different country, be paired, actually have an experience, not just like take classes. People will do research, they'll work with nonprofits, they'll work with an industry partner. The fact that we have these experiences where you can go to another country, get paid to do it, and also gain an experience out of it is just insane to me. And I wish I had actually like done a MISTI program while I was at MIT. I mean, I did something similar. I will say, back to your point of like, if you want to do something, you will find a way to do it and the money to do it. So my junior year, I didn't really have any opportunities for IAP, which IAP is the independent activities period in our January, um, in the month of January. And I really wanted to travel ab abroad, but um, kind of the MISTI thing wasn't working out. I think it was too early to, to start considering MISTI. It was right before the pandemic started too. Um, and all of the programs for January were kind of closing up. I was like, oh, well, I really want to travel abroad before I leave MIT. I said, okay, let me see what I can find. I reached out to the um, study abroad office and they said, well, all of our programs are closed, but we know that people have gone. Um, there's this program in Argentina, actually, that uh, we've had a couple students go through. It's not associated with MIT, but um, you can see if you would like to do it. And so I reached out and I basically got accepted into the program. 
but then I would have to pay out of pocket. So then I was like, okay, let me find a place to get money because I don't have money to be doing all of this. <laughs> so I um, reached out to the Office of Minority Education and I also got a grant from, there was, I can't remember the, the name. There's like a traveler's grant or something like that. So I ended up getting both those grants, had a net neutral trip to Argentina for a month where I... That is um, amazing. Yeah, it was, it was so crazy. I was by myself, which... I mean, in retrospect, I was like, hmm, I don't know if this is such a good idea, but it happened. It's it was a great, great, I had a great idea. Time. <laughs> it's the only time you can do this. It's a great idea. <laughs> exactly. So I was learning Spanish for um, the first two weeks, which I knew a little bit of Spanish beforehand. And then I was volunteering at a day center for homeless men. Um, and yeah, I just, I had a really great experience. I learned a lot about international like volunteering. Um, and like, I, I started to think more critically about like, volunteerism especially like how you know we as like americans or like travelers can kind of like go to other countries and act like you know we're helping volunteer whatever but is actually helping yeah the people in the area or is it just you know to make yourself feel better to make yourself look better (laughs) um and so yeah it, it was very interesting also like hearing about like health in an international standpoint so it really did help me um i think i gained a lot from it from it like from a a career standpoint in terms of like the international health and um, like knowing more about like the context of other countries and like the context of things that are happening in other countries because I, don't, I think a lot of times it's very like American centric um, and it's so, wildly yeah. different like the healthcare system here is so wildly different than anywhere else in the world and I just feel like the rest of the world is more similar and everywhere is more different than here yeah um, so I that's agree. definitely valuable. And I, I, I've never heard that term, actually, like volunteerism. I've never thought about it that way. So you've definitely given me some food for thought there. I always think about the same thing, like how much of it is done for the aesthetics um, mm-hmm. and how much of it is truly genuine. And, you know, maybe it's okay if it's for the aesthetics, if the, the ultimate uh, result is positive, right? Like you are still volunteering. But I think a lot about intention and, and doing things with the right intention. So that resonates with me a lot. I'm glad you mentioned Spanish because I may have done some research and by research, I mean, stalked your LinkedIn profile <laughs> and I learned that you speak several languages. So English made sense, Arabic made sense, and then Spanish kind of made sense. A lot of people in the U.S. learn Spanish and then you just mentioned Argentina. So that even makes more sense now. But Japanese, can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> What's the story there? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I like... I love to watch anime, honestly. When I was a kid on Cartoon Network, it was on all the time. That was like the one time me and my brother would get along as we sit <laughs> Saturday mornings and watch animated shows. And then I guess when I came to college, my freshman year, I didn't take a language. My sophomore year, I, you know, I had some space in my schedule. And I was like, you know, I've never actually like taken a language to learn it at that point, if that makes sense. Because so, I grew up with French, English, and Arabic. And I realized I'd never actually like taken a new language and I wanted that experience. And people talk about how college is actually the best time to learn a language because you will never have that much time in your day set aside just, you know, to learn the language. Um, And so in depth as well, like the MIT languages here are just so well done. I don't even, I don't even know why it's just so well done. Um, So yeah, I decided to take Japanese and I loved it so much. I'm now on the sixth semester and I'm getting a Japanese minor. So it is amazing. Yeah. 
Wow, I forgot French too on my list. So English, Arabic, Spanish, French, and now Japanese. That is so impressive. It is so impressive. I tried to learn Spanish at MIT and you're right. Honestly, I regret not um, investing more time in it. I had to prioritize, unfortunately, other classes. And by Mm -hmm. unfortunately, other classes, I mean like requirements for my degree. (laughs) So (laughs) I I had to make some choices there. And I've been trying to learn since. And it's a lot more difficult to dedicate the time after. And it's not at all in the same format. But yeah, so I guess you're really giving me a lot to add to my list of what would I do differently if I go back to MIT. <laughs> um, so great advice in general. That's awesome. I think one thing I want to touch upon is some of the other organizations that you are involved with at MIT. So besides academics and the research, um, can you tell us a little bit on about the students group, uh, student group Sorry, that you're involved in as well? Yeah, so I'm involved in a couple organizations on campus. I think the one I'm most involved in has been the Black Women's Alliance. So um, I'm biracial. And I think like coming to MIT was really important for me to have a community of people who like related with a lot of things. And so for some of that, I I think the difficult part was like, I didn't really grow up around like a large like Arabic community. So I, you know, first I lived in Tennessee and then I moved to Texas, kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, and I didn't really have like a community around me. The people I was used to was, um, is mostly like underrepresented minorities. And so the Black Women's Alliance has kind of been that for me. Yeah, so I've, I've been involved as their, the secretary my first year and then the co-chair my next year. Um, and yeah, we just really like put on events for Black women on campus to kind of get to know each other and like, to form a tight-knit community. Um, which I've really appreciated during this time. And I think other than that, I've been involved in the MSA, the Muslim Students Association. Um, it's a pretty big organization on campus, I will say. Yeah, it's I, I love the MSA because I think that it's a very diverse group of people and a very welcoming. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's been like very supportive. I also served as an inclusion chair um, last year. That was the first year we had an inclusion chair. So it's definitely... Um, growing in a lot of ways, and I'm excited to see um, like where it's moving towards. I also, I've always loved to dance, and so I dance on a couple dance teams on campus. I'm involved in Dance Troop, which is a very big organization on campus. For some reason, MIT students love to dance. Um, I think it's about, great stress relief. <laughs> you no, know, definitely, definitely, it's about 300 people. Yeah, I think 300. Yeah, the, students I remember per the performances used to be huge. Yeah, so I mean. I think it's great. Dance Troupe is really great because there's so many people involved. It's all levels of dance. And it's for every dance, it's one hour a week commitment. So it's a super low commitment. That's perfect for MIT students who love to pile things onto their schedule. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really great. Like every, every semester, I think 14, there are about 14 choreographers who audition for their dances um, and then they'll show the dances to everybody. People will pick what dances they want to be in at the end of the semester after like, I don't know, 12 practices, you put on a show. And so you learn about like different aspects of it. There's so many different types. So there's been like um, hip hop, tap, jazz. There's been like Bangra a couple of times, Afro-Caribbean. Um, so yeah, it's super cool to, to kind of get involved in different dance styles that you wouldn't normally know about at all. Um, and also you meet people from all across campus. It's not tied to any particular demographic, which is really great because I think some of the people who I've been friends with, I don't know if I would have interacted with them otherwise, just solely based off of the people that I hang out with. 
Um, so yeah, it's been really cool. And I think other than that, I'm also on the on Sakata Afrique, which is the Afro-Caribbean dance team on campus. That is, you really are just piling up on my list of like, <laughs> darn, should have done that one too. That's so awesome. But really, my question is, do you sleep? There's so much going on. <laughs> oh, yes, I sleep. And I'm a big proponent of sleeping. I sleep like eight to nine hours a day. I think that the thing is one time management. I'm a very good like time manager. <laughs> um, I schedule everything. Um, I've also, especially my last couple years, I've learned to say no to a lot of things and like be okay with not being there for everything. Because I think my freshman year, you know, there's so much stuff going on. You want to be involved in everything. Um, you don't want to miss out. You know, FOMO <laughs> is a yeah. big thing now. <laughs> and you know, after a while, you just like it's not humanly possible for you to do everything. And it's fine. And I think at a place like MIT, where there's so many people doing so many things, if you drop something and you're communicative about it, people are understanding and somebody else is going to pick up the work. And so that's kind of something that I've learned along the way, too, is like, you know, if I can't be at this meeting, it's fine. Somebody else will take notes or do whatever they need to do. And that's like, and that's something that like keeps me sane, right? So I can do all these things. But one of my hard no's at the end, or like my hard lines at the end of the day is I go to bed at 12 every day. That's it. You know, that's such, that's such good time management, honestly. And it will uh, pay off a long way, especially as like you're in med school and have so much going on. And even in an industry, like that's one of the hardest things. I was reading an article in the New York times last week. It got, I think it got like shared pretty widely. Like um, Mm -hmm. I think it was one of those like viral because so many people related to it. Um, it was something about like languishing and how that's like the feeling that people are feeling in the pandemic. And I don't know, besides the point, I digress. One of the things in it that they mentioned is called revenge bedtime procrastination. Yes. I think I read that article. And I was like, that resonated to a whole new level with me because as much as I love sleep, I have this thing where if I had the whole day planned and I had so much going on, especially if it was mostly work or school or studying, I don't want to just do that, then eat dinner and then go to sleep. Like that just for me sounds like a wasted day. So then I end up just procrastinating sleep because I want to feel like I did more things in my day. Um, (laughs) But I need to learn your ways. I need to learn the hard line. Honestly, I'm glad we talked about this because it's really important for people to realize also that you can be that involved and you can do so much and still not sacrifice your friendships or relationships or Mm -hmm. sleep or all those things. Um, So that's fantastic. I'm so glad we talked about this. Well, we're coming up on time, but before we wrap up, I want to ask you, what will you miss the most about MIT when you graduate? All the money and free food. (laughs) I feel like that's the theme of our episode. Yes. (laughs) Well, on that note, I think it's a perfect place to wrap up. Zena, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for sharing your experiences with us and we wish you the best of luck with um, kind of your graduation, finishing up this month, and then pursuing your MD-PhD. And we'll stay tuned on what you do in the future. I, for one, will keep my eyes peeled. (laughs) Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Tune in, everybody, for our upcoming episode. But that's a wrap for today.